Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show. That's me. I'm Bill Barnwell. I am joined today by Mike Sando of The Athletic. Talk about three big stories in the NFL. Of course, the news about John Gruden being fired by the Raiders. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about the Russell Wilson situation with the Seahawks and about the changing of the guard with the Chiefs and the Bills. Before we do all of that, I wanted to quickly tell you that Keyshawn, Jay Will, and Max are on ESPN Radio Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. It's bringing you insights from the former number one pick in the NFL draft, Keyshawn Johnson, along with the number two pick in the NBA draft, Jay Williams, and an undrafted free agent, but a brilliant mind in his own right, in Max Kellerman. He's talking about the latest news from the NFL and college football. Tune in to hear them debate what's happening and grill the best-known guests in sports. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and ESPN News, or listen to the podcast of the show. Also, our annual NBA opening night doubleheader is Wednesday, October 20th. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and the Celtics are at Madison Square Garden. Take on Julius Randle, former Celtic Kemba Walker. You know I love a revenge game. And the Knicks at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. Then it's our primetime West Coast game with reigning NBA MVP Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets in Phoenix, squaring off against Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and the Suns, last season's Western Conference champs. Two great matchups to tip off the NBA season on ESPN and the ESPN app. One app, one tap. Now, here's Mike Sando talking about all the NFL news from this past week. All right, joining me now here, as promised, on the Bill Barnwell Show with some news from yesterday and, of course, a couple of NFL topics we were going to get to. But, of course, first, uh, we're going to talk about the John Gruden news with a former colleague of mine on the ESPN, now an excellent writer and podcaster at The Athletic. It's Mr. Mike Sando. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. Great to be here, Bill. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to have you on, Mike. And wanted to have you on and talk about the Seahawks and about the Bills and the Chiefs, about football stuff. And then last night, the John Gruden situation went, uh, I guess, supernova. I can't think of what the appropriate term would be. But of course, uh, if you have not heard the news, if we're getting your NFL news from this podcast exclusively, I <laughs> find your choices in media consumption to be strange. But uh, John Gruden last week, as part of an NFL investigation into a separate matter, was found to have sent emails that had uh, racist terms. He apologized last week. And then on Monday, it was revealed by the New York Times that Gruden uh, had also sent messages that were homophobic, um, that were uh, basically uh, offensive to many groups of people. Gruden then resigned, it sounds like, or or I guess it's fake. I guess we don't know whether he resigned or whether he was uh, fired. It seemed like last night, um, when the news was reported, uh, Mark Davis left his palatial estate in Las Vegas, went to the Raiders facility, met John Gruden, and it seemed after that conversation that he was no longer going to be the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. So, Mike, in terms of what happened here, in terms of what you've seen reported, was there any way you think that John Gruden could have kept his job or, or any scenario where you think after what happened that, that, that this was the only possible outcome? No way could he, you know, and, and I, as this was all coming down, once I saw the New York times story, uh, you know, that had all of the comments, it's, it's, 
plausible to apologize for a comment that was made in private, a comment, right? I mean, you could still not be able to overcome it, but it's plausible that if there's one comment you made once that you feel terrible about it, right? Mm -hmm. That's plausible. Um, But when you have a pattern of them attacking so many different groups of people and individuals Mm -hmm. of people in really inappropriate ways, I mean, you can't just say I had a lapse in judgment, right? I mean, I don't know how you can lead a diverse team, company, locker room, um, when you're just completely exposed in that way. Um, so it, it had to happen. Once that New York Times thing came out, I, I actually texted it to my wife, um, and she was like, I think her reply was awful, can't coach the team. And mm-hmm. She's not an NFL columnist. That's just a person who sort of follows the league from afar, just a general impression, right? And I think that was a good general impression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah, I mean, I was watching Monday Night Football with my fiance, and, and I wasn't talking about what happened. Um, but the report, you know, Adam Schefter broke into Monday Night Football, and the report came, and she just turned to me and said, what? Like, you know, just, you know, just sort of shocked that this could be uh, you know, something that would happen at this point. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like, like you said, this isn't just one isolated incident. It's not just one email or, you know, a, a misjudgment from a 17 year old, you know, we've seen players. I, I think Josh Allen comes to mind as someone who came through the draft process. You know, someone found an old tweet. Uh, that, that's one thing. John Gruden was a grown man when these emails were coming out, John Green was in his forties. He'd worked in the NFL for decades. He'd worked with people of color. Um, I don't know if he realized, I'm sure he'd worked with gay players. And now of course uh, the, I believe the only out player in the NFL is on John Gruden's roster. Um, And I guess, you know, someone who does not need to have the same sort of protection, but someone who did get brought up, in John Gruden's criticisms were was Roger Goodell. I mean, DeMar Smith, Smith, the uh, NFLPA head, also came up. I mean, really, a, a lot of people were sort of came under John Gruden's uh, scope for these emails. And I think at the end of the day, when it comes to the Raiders organization, you know, I'm not sure this is the most, how would I put it, the most thoughtful organization in football. You know, I I don't know whether they would have tried to sweep this under the rug if it had only been that one email on Friday. Certainly it seemed like, you know, the reports we were hearing over the weekend were sort of like uh, the Raiders were a little apprehensive about maybe doing something because Gruden was, uh, you know, the, the conduct had occurred when Gruden was working for ESPN, when he was not a Raiders employee. Um, but I think, like you said, you know, how can you walk into a locker room with players of color, players who you know are gay, players who have all, all these different backgrounds and have any sort of credibility? And, and I think that, you know, that there there was no choice. At the end of the day, yeah. you know, it, it just became a, a, a story that Gruden, even someone with as much power and as much sort of scope as Gruden did in the Raiders organization, uh, couldn't get past. 
And remember, this is the organization that hired Tom Flores, that hired Art Shell. When people weren't, teams weren't doing that, hiring people of color in positions like that. They had um, Terry Robisky as their offensive coordinator. They had uh, Vince Evans as a quarterback on mm -hmm. their team. They had Amy Trask in their front office, right? There's a, a, a long history there, certainly under Al Davis. And I think with Mark Davis, we, you know, he's been a, someone who's been made fun of, but I mean, I think we're figuring out what he's about, right? Mm -hmm. sure. I think once the further things came out, the, there was just, there wasn't really a decision to make. I don't mm -hmm. think that he, John Gruden could fight it, anything like that. It's just a matter of time. So mm -hmm. here we are and, uh, you know, we'll see what they do from here. They have multiple head coaches on their staff and Gus Bradley and Tom Cable and Rod Marinelli. So you would think they'd be able to, you know, weather it better than maybe some teams could in the short term. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, by the way, also before I go on, I should say, um, I said Demarcus Smith, of course, Demarcus Smith is the NFLPA head. That's my mistake. Um, in terms of the organization that Rich Passaccia has been sort of the, uh, person brought up first as a possible interim coach. Um, do you think this leads to sort of wholesale changes after the year? Of course, the Raiders started 3-0. I mean, this was a, a coach who was on a 10-year contract. Um, Gruden's Raiders have, you know, uh, the personnel track record has been uh, iffy. This is a team that um, has not had a winning record in the first three years of Gruden's tenure. They did make some changes this offseason. They brought in Bradley as their defensive coordinator. Um, but do you think this leads to sort of, uh, hey, we get rid of John Gruden, but we're going to promote somebody and kind of keep the same staff and see how that goes? Or do you think that this is basically, you know, sort of a the, the first step in what's going to be wholesale changes with the Raiders organization heading into 2022? Oh, yeah, I, I, would, I would think it's the first step. You know, the this is so backwards of what we thought before, because I always thought John Gruden would be the last guy to be fired. Mm -hmm. And so as if their team, you know, had these personnel issues, I thought at the end of this year, okay, then it would be Mayock, Mike Mayock's fault. Right. 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 And for a couple of years, we speculated, okay, would Derek Carr be the fall guy, but he's played too well. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's, he, he's, that, that wouldn't be as feasible. So now that this happens, I would think it's an opportunity probably for, uh, to consider a clean sweep after the season, right? And just start fresh, um, which I don't think is a terrible thing for the Raiders. You know, I think John Gruden um, gave them a name and some pizzazz and was probably the right guy for them as they were trying to, you know, as they were going to make the transition to Las Vegas. He's a star, star power guy. Uh, he had done good work, I think, with, with Derek Carr, maybe got him on a little bit of a better level, or maybe Derek Carr on his own just, you know, grew into that. And now I think we're see we're seeing an organization that kind of probably stalled there, right? I mean, don't you think they've gotten what they were going to get out of Gruden? And now in making the change, they um, can hire somebody who's cheaper, who is probably easier to work with, right? I mean, it's John Gruden's way or the highway. I think you can get a better team in the front office of a coach and GM who work well together. Maybe it's Mayock, but it's, you know, it's probably somebody who mm -hmm. has an existing relationship with, with whoever coach they hire, right? Because mm -hmm. that's such an important fit. That's why I think that we can definitely see, you know, you know changes as they try to get that fit right. And it's not going to be all about John Gruden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you think about 
The other sort of under fire coach in the NFL over the past few weeks has been Urban Meyer of the Jaguars. Um, John Gruden and Urban Meyer in different situations, of course, with different backgrounds and different levels of experience were two of the coaches in the NFL who I think had the most power in their respective buildings. Of course, Bill Belichick comes to mind as one of those guys. Kyle Shanahan has a lot of power in San Francisco, uh, Pete Carroll in Seattle. You can go around the league. There's, of course, different levels of power from coach to coach. But these are two guys who had, you know, uh, some personnel um, control. Coach Gruden, I think, had personal control. Um, Urban Meyer, whether it's stated or unstated, I think has a significant amount of control into what's happening in Jacksonville. And, you know, you covered this league for a while, Mike. You've seen this model work in certain places and this model not work in certain places. You've seen it work with the same guy. Mike Holmgren had a lot of success in Seattle and then not as much, of course, in Cleveland. Um, do you think what happened with Gruden, what happened with, or what I guess is happening with Urban Meyer, assuming that things don't suddenly turn around, do you think that's going to discourage teams from going to that sort of model where he coaches the you know, the football czar and has final control and is, you know, the singular force in the organization or are these just sort of aberrations? No, I, 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 here's what I think on that. I think that teams do whatever they have to do to get the coach they really want. I don't think anybody goes into it and says, you know what, we want a model where we have a czar, uh, where the coach is all powerful and does that. What happens is, oh, you want Mike Holmgren? Oh, you want Pete Carroll? Oh, you want John Gruden? Well, guess what? Then he's going to have total control. Mm -hmm. And then you weigh that as an organization. Okay, is it worth it? God, we don't want to give total control, but God, we want to have Gruden. So, okay, we'll do it. I think that's how it happens. It's a case-by-case basis. It's it's not the ideal scenario. And even, you know, Mike Holmgren did have a lot of success in Seattle. Remember, he was the coach and he was hired as the coach and GM there and actually got stripped of the GM title. Uh, maybe about three or four years into that. And they tried to split up some of that power uh, after doing what they had to do to get Holmgren, right? Give him, give him the power. So he wasn't coming to Seattle. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's where that comes from. And no one really wants to do it. You know, no one really wants to have um, the, any one person have too much power. You just sort of do it if you have to. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8 Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. Um, Let's move on here. I mean, we have a bunch to discuss and we just brought up the Seahawks. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today, Mike, is as a Washington area native. Of course, you did grow up as a Raiders fan. So I guess that, you know, you have the Raiders background, but also you covered the Seahawks for a while. Um, of course, a team that is very, you know, uh, sort of close in your mind, I would imagine. And they're in a very difficult spot right now. The Seahawks two and three and more disconcertingly lose Russell Wilson for the foreseeable future with a finger injury. Um, Geno Smith came in against the Rams on Thursday 
and a brief showing of competence. And Geno Smith might be fine. I mean, we have certainly plenty of weapons room to work with that receiver uh, if you're the Seahawks, but have to figure that this sinks Seattle's chances uh, of certainly competing for the NFC West, if not for the wild card as a whole. So, Michael, I guess let's start there. I mean, do you disagree? Do you think the Seahawks still have a chance of competing in 2021 or is losing Wilson for at least four weeks, you know, sort of the final blow to their chances? Um, I think they still have a chance, but the margin for error is way down. I think this. So, like Arizona's five and zero. Oh. Um, the the question we had about Arizona was over the course of a full season, right? Kyler Murray had been banged up, smaller quarterback. I think it remains to be seen um, how well they do the course of, of the whole season. The Rams are good, but their defense is a question mark. So. Does Stafford get banged up over the course of the season? The irony is that we thought that Russell Wilson's availability was the one thing he could count on the most in the division. That was the mm-hmm. only reason that I would have picked them um, to win the division. Now, what has to happen for them is um, there has to be, this is what I wrote about in my Monday column, there has to be a reckoning on the defensive side. I think that was coming, but now with the record, the, the badness of the defense and with Wilson out, I think Pete Carroll has to get in there. And, and personally fix the defense, which includes maximizing the personnel they have, which specifically is Jamal Adams. We can't have him back there in coverage like we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. If you're Seattle in a Seahawks yes. standpoint, um, he can be very disruptive around the line of scrimmage, but it takes a specific plan. Where's that been? I've been, I've been critical of that. And I, I feel for Jamal Adams. Players get ripped for performance, but when you have specific skill set players, they have to be played in the right way. You would never take an offensive tackle and have him play wide receiver, right? And then rip the receiver. The criticism's harder to, to, to for people to see with Jamal Adams because most safeties are supposed to cover, but he has to fix that. Okay, so if the defense is representative and Geno Smith is just average, then what they have to do is navigate a three-game stretch before they're by, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's at Pittsburgh, which – Look, Ben Roethlisberger might look worse than Geno Smith in this game. That's what they have to hope happens, right? They play New Orleans, who even when they win like 28-13 at New Orleans, you watch the game, or at New England, you watch the game, and you're like, oh, that was ugly. But New Orleans could beat Seattle by 20 or lose by 10, right? It's a, it's a bad team. It's a bad team with a good record, right? They're flawed. Jacksonville's the next week, okay? So if Seattle finds a way to go 2-1, and one, with Geno Smith, which is not totally, it's maybe unlikely, but it's, it's possible mm-hmm. get into your bye week. And then Russell Wilson comes back. They were vague on the terms of how long it would be back. You know, is it four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks? I think that they have to get him back out of that bye because then they play green Bay and Arizona. All right. Mm-hmm. And I see those as the games that, you know, they got to get at least one of those, maybe both. So I probably described a longer shot scenario, but I think that's what it is. I agree. I mean, it's certainly a lot has to go right for them to kind of hold the fort until, uh, until Russell Wilson comes back. And I think we've heard, we've seen that happen in the past and the Packers won the division. One of the years Aaron Rodgers got hurt, but that was a division where, you know, basically it was up for grabs and nobody did enough to win it. And Rodgers came back and, you know, sort of was in a prime position. Whereas this does not feel like that's going to be the case with the NFC West. The Cardinals are five and zero. Oh. Um, the Rams just beat the Seahawks and they're four and one. 
So that's going to be a tough landing spot uh, for the Seahawks. And you mentioned Jamal Adams, and certainly it feels like he is getting the brunt of the criticism for what is wrong with this Seahawks team. And I think some of that is warranted. I've seen a lot of sort of coverage busts where Jamal Adams gets blamed. And when I look closer at what actually happened on tape, um, I I have not found him to be a blame uh, in those situations. But I think it's certainly fair to say that Jamal Adams does not look like a guy who the Seahawks or another team would typically give up two first round picks to acquire. Certainly if you're trading for that kind of player, you usually want someone like a Jalen Ramsey, where he is a different spanker at cornerback and a guy who doesn't have those limitations. You know, it's not Jamal uh, Jalen Ramsey is a cornerback who can't tackle or can't play in the slot. You know, he is a guy who he is a cornerback who can do anything you want him to do. Jamal Adams does not seem like he has those sort of uh, abilities. And I guess when it comes to the Jamal Adams trade, we only have a little bit over a year of data, but looking back, do you think that was a trade where the Seahawks said, okay, we think Jamal Adams can be a difference maker to the extent of two first round picks and he has not been, or do you think it's a situation where the Seahawks said, okay, we're trading for this guy uh, and he's going to be really good. And we're going to be picking in the late twenties. Like, like do you, how confident do you think the Seahawks were that they were going to be picking at the end of the first round. And so their first round picks were not as valuable as they might be now that Russell Wilson uh, is going to miss time. Yes. I think it's the latter scenario. Uh, and look, we've both done that research. If you're picking back half of the first round it sucks, you're either going to get <laughs> the best player at a non-premium position who still might miss, or you're going to get a lower ranked player at a premium position with a, you know, a one in 20 chance that, it, that you get TJ Watt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have no problem trading the later round picks. I thought at the time uh, that it would be unlikely that the, the Jets in this case would get somebody as good as Jamal Adams with either one of those picks or combine them. I figure one of those picks will probably just be a bust. Mm-hmm. And the other one, you're lucky to maybe you get a starter, you know, that, that sort of a thing, but he's not an impact player. So um, I think for Seattle to make the trade work, um, well, first, uh, finishing that thought, I don't fault them for the fact if Russell Wilson has a th- injury and they, they draft later. I mean, that's just that's a fluke injury. He, he was automatic to play every week for 10 mm-hmm. years. So it wasn't like he was under duress all the time. Right. He, he hit his hand on a helmet that could happen to any quarterback. So not, a, not a lot um, of fault there, but I think there has to be a concerted effort and plan uh, for the team to feature a player properly. And I think we've seen with Seattle, some questionableness on that front. I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. They acquired Jimmy Graham. Now just putting Jimmy Graham out there gives you a good tight end at that time. Sure. But he was somebody who was really schemed up by Sean Payton. We can all picture what it's like to have him alone on one side of the formation and receivers on the other side, mm-hmm. and you get the coverage ID and you get sort of an X isolation matchup. Yep. And I did, I felt like Seattle kind of plugged him in to their offense as a tight end, and we didn't see that enough. 
Mm-hmm. So strike against Seattle. Maybe that's a better acquisition if you actually use them right all the time and feature them right. Well, here we are, Jamal Adams. For him to work, you're right. He's not Jalen Ramsey. Um, I get that. And all of these situations are different. I mean, maybe they should have gotten Jalen Ramsey, but they got Jamal Adams. I think he can be a number one game plan consideration for the opponent if you use him right. Mm-hmm. I think they're not using him right. Maybe they have other issues on their defense that make it all moot. They can't rush the passer. They can't cover. Those are separate issues, but I think you have to do everything you can to maximize him. And if you do that and he's an elite player, to me, that's probably better than who Seattle would have taken late in the round. Do you want him to get, you know, Rashad Penny, Malik McDowell, uh, LJ Collier, you know, all those guys that you get end of first start of second round. I mean, I'd have Jamal Adams over those guys. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe the solution is just pick better players at the end of the <laughs> round, but we see teams miss all the time on it. The hit rate's low. Mm-hmm. That's true. I, I, I play devil's advocate here. I will point out that the Seahawks did trade out of the bottom of the first round one year, a couple of years ago, traded a couple more times, and then ended up getting a DK Metcalf yeah, at the I end like of the that. second round. So, <laughs> you know, like that, that is the one thing you could say is okay. Yeah. Seahawks could have traded down out of that pick grabbed a few guys. Maybe they don't get, you know, LJ Collier, to be fair. Maybe they get someone who is effective as a pass rusher. Maybe they get another cornerback in the second round, you know, and maybe they're not as reliant on, say, Sidney Jones, who has not been a good NFL player coming back to the Pacific Northwest, having to plug him in as a starter, and you don't get a blown coverage for a long touchdown um, because you have a guy who's not experienced entering lineup because you have no other options at cornerback. You know, I, I certainly... I think there's an elite player acquisition market for teams that are close. For sure. Right? You have your quarterback. You don't have time to develop a guy and see if you hit on him and wait for three years. So you give up your capital and you say, you know what? Jamal Adams should be perfect in this defense. Here's why we can make it happen. And we can debate whether it was the right value or not. But at the end of the day, he has to be a good player, right? right? He has sure. to be a good player. That has to be assumed. And I think he is a good player, but he has to be featured. Right. And maybe that maybe we're both sort of right here in that you took a chance by getting a guy who has some warts and isn't universal. But to me, that just puts all the more pressure on Pete Carroll. He's got to make that work. And we saw mm-hmm. it last year. I yep. mean, I think he was a good, a good force for them in, in the past rush and, mm-hmm. and just overall. And, and where is that? They should have had an even better plan this year with the whole off season. Absolutely. Ridiculous to me to watch them play and pl- play him that way. That's the thing. You know, it's not always a lack of talent for the Seahawks. You know, there's just defenses where they're just overmatched. They don't have the players to keep up. That's one thing. The Seahawks have talented players at multiple levels of the field. I mean, Jamal Adams is a super talented player. We know that. Bobby Wagner is a super talented player. Daryl Taylor is very talented. They have guys who are impressive, but, you know, it feels like they're dependent on a moment of magic from certain guys to get the defense off the field. And, you know, Pete Carroll, obviously as a defensive head coach deserves some of the blame here, but also there's been a lot of criticism of defensive coordinator, Ken Norton. I know that there's plenty of people who want to see Ken Norton fired here in mid season uh, in, in his fourth year, I believe as Seahawks defensive coordinator. Do you think that's a solution that is realistically on the table for the Seahawks or something you would recommend they would do given how they played through the first uh, five weeks of the season here? I don't think that Pete Carroll would do that. I think he's too loyal. Um, 
And, you know, really when you have the coordinator be on the same side of the ball as the head coach, to me, it's up to Pete Carroll to fix it, right? He can do that without having to have uh, somebody else come in. You're not going to, unless you just think Ken Norton's the impediment to it and and you want to get him out of there. Um, And then in that case, maybe you, you know, promote a Clint Hurt, right? Who's the assistant head coach, defensive line. Mm -hmm. Um, If you really thought Clint Hurt was somebody who was demonstrably better, then you could do that. I think you could do that. But I think it falls on Pete Carroll because he's the the architect of the style of defense they play. I don't think anybody saw Ken Norton as somebody who had an independent scheme, right? right? He's sort of the guy doing what they want to do, which is what Pete wants to do. So that's my answer. It's on Pete unless he loves one of the other guys on the staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I agree. You know, just in terms of the, you know, what I, I think fans around the NFL, like can get into a vacuum when it comes to their organization and how frustrated they are. And, and I think that having to interact and read everybody around the NFL and interact with every team's fans. There's like 10 teams every week that want to fire one of the, one of their coaches or one of their coordinators. And sometimes they deserve it, but sometimes it's just a bad week or, you know, a, a bad situation. It, it wouldn't shock me if the Seahawks fired Ken Norton after this season, yes. but I don't think that it's going to happen mid year. And I, I don't think it would really help all that much. I think, the changes they would make right now, they can make with Ken Norton there as defensive coordinator. Now, they might make a change at defensive coordinator after the season. And I believe your colleague, Jake Glazer, I still think he's the athletic. I know he's, of course, does TV for Fox, but Jay Glazer also came out last week before the injury and said that he thinks Russell Wilson will pursue a trade again after the 2021 season. So if you're the Seahawks and you're, you have a quarterback who seems unhappy, who, you know, is at odds with the offensive structure that's being run. What do you do? I don't don't know what the right thing to do is in the situation. Well, remember Russell Wilson wanted Shane Waldron there as the coordinator, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that would stop him. I think Russell Wilson's all about, what are the results for the team at the end of the year? Mm-hmm. What's his, how's his legacy shaping up? Those types of big picture questions. And if they're missed the playoffs or one and done in the playoffs, I think we're going to have all of the same frustrations come out, whether he goes on the record and says something or not, it's, it, that stuff will come out. I think Jay Glazer's got that. The frustration will be there and that stuff will be inflamed again. And I think, the difference this soft season will be that Seattle won't be surprised in any way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're going to be ready. They're going to have contingencies thought out and who knows what could happen. I don't know what their tack will be at that time. Some of it may depend on how well Russell Wilson plays mm-hmm. the rest of the year. I think he's played pretty well so far this year Yeah, and the systems can be good for him, but they, they hadn't really found their groove yet. You know, as, as good as the offense has been in stretches this year, mm-hmm. They've been such a big play boomer bust offense where it's like their drives are three plays long. Where do they get a touchdown or to go three and out? You know what I mean? And I think that was sort that's sort of a part of the season that's been a little frustrating for them in terms of helping out the defense, sustaining things a little bit. And if they can get that going over the second half of the year with Russell Wilson back, 
I think it bodes well for the team and their chances. But if they miss the playoffs, I think we're right back to the offseason narratives that we were uh, last season, which is what Jay Glazer's plan. Mm-hmm. Let's say they do miss the playoffs. Let's say that Russell Wilson misses six weeks. The Seahawks go, you know, one and five or two and four without him. They play well at the end of the year, but they miss the playoffs. Does that increase Russell Wilson's leverage to sit here and say, hey, look, I got hurt and you guys were not the same without me. And, you know, I I am the most important part of this organization. Or, or do you think it, they kind of already realized that it doesn't change anything? Oh, I think they realize that. But I think the anything that enhances the narrative of Russell Wilson's doing it all and they're not helping him enough. Mm-hmm. Um helps his agent and anyone else who wants to press the narrative that we've seen come out in the last couple of years that, Hey, Pete Carroll passed him by. He wants to run the ball at the time. Russell Wilson's a superstar like Mahomes. He needs to be in that type of an offense. Stop holding him back. I think that that's the, the narrative we would hear and see. Mm-hmm. I certainly agree. Um, you mentioned the idea of, a changing of the guard or the idea of um, someone being passed by. And I want to talk about a changing of the guard, perhaps in the AFC as we finish up here, that is the chiefs and the bills game from Sunday. I think everyone sort of latched onto it as it was happening as the chiefs were getting, let's be fair, blown out by the bills in that game, a game where the, the bills to me looked like the 2018 chiefs where it was, you know, explosive, explosive, explosive. And the chiefs, the 2021 Chiefs looked like the Alex Smith era Chiefs, where they were having to grind the ball down the field eight, nine yards at a time. And it felt like such a struggle. And of course, then, uh, unlike those Alex Smith era teams, a couple of sloppy plays, uh, a couple of interceptions from Patrick Mahomes, and uh, one of which was like the cause of a drop by Tyreek Hill. And the Bills took advantage of those opportunities and won handily in Kansas City. So I, I want to start here, Mike, by asking you um, from your perspective, given how well the Bills played, given how well they've looked over the course of the entire season, do you think this was a changing of the guard? And are the Bills now the team to beat in the AFC? Yeah, I think that would be hard to deny because I think the Chiefs' problems, especially on defense, um, aren't new this week. They didn't just have a bad game, right? I mean, I think they, I think we've seen it bleeding a little bit last year too. You know, And they, they took their offseason resources and decided to fix their offensive line. Um, Buffalo kind of tried to help their defensive line. Right. Mm-hmm. And we saw who, even though the chief line, I, I like some of the changes they've made. Um, we clearly saw that those changes in the short term are favoring uh, Buffalo. I thought Kevin Cole of PFF had a great tweet, Josh Allen's time to throw on his top five EPA plays. Mm-hmm. This is in seconds. 4.0, 5.5, 3.8, 5.1, and 4.4. Wow. And as anyone who listens to Bill Barnwell knows, two and a half seconds is kind of the cutoff, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, of enough time or not to get rid of the ball. And you'll see the real quick guys do it in 2.3 or one. Mm-hmm. And the guys who scramble a little bit more, maybe they're closer to three. But if you're having four, five, four, five, and these are like 40 times, Bill, you could run, not you and I could run, but like (laughs) guys run 40 times in that amount of time. So I think that's a problem that is there for Kansas City right now. One of the things I did is 
I looked at who PFF's highest graded Kansas City defensive players were against the Bills in the playoffs last year, okay? Mm -hmm. I think this is illustrative. Illustrative? Illustrative? Um, Juan Thornhill, okay? He was the top guy. Well, he only played 22 snaps this time. He's got kind of a diminished role. Yep. Uh, Bashad Breland, right? Not a superstar, but gone. Yep. Anthony Hitchens, okay, he's still there. Um, Chris Jones. Did not play. Shavarius Ward did not play. So that's a lot of defensive horsepower. I think the Chris Jones one is huge. I think they have to get him back. They have to get better pass rush. I think the pass rush is, of Kansas City is the number one variable that determines whether this shift that we observed and that you asked about is permanent for the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you they think to- that getting Chris Jones back is going to be enough for the Chiefs? Um, it, pl- it possibly could be in a game. I think sometimes when you lose a game like this, when you have two teams, this, this is sort of like, you know, not as many skins on the wall, but the old Cowboys 49ers, you know, you know what I mean? When you have two teams that are kind of the teams, mm-hmm. uh, when one of them wins the early season battle, I think the other team has to then adjust the second time, right? Let's just mm-hmm. assume that Kansas City recovers enough, makes the playoffs, and they're in Buffalo. I could see a scenario whereby Kansas City – um, has the adjustments, has the pass rush, um, you know, to do it on a one game basis, maybe controls the game in a little bit of a different way offensively, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things. But I think it's a little bit of a stretch to see right now with just where they're at defensively. Frank Clark doesn't, speaking of trades, right? I mean, Frank Clark do- doesn't look like a big difference maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. They better get it from Chris Jones. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wonder if they're a team where they're so leveraged over the next few years and they're so dedicated to winning with this core that they go out and try and get somebody and they yeah. don't have a lot of cap space. They don't have a lot to work with, but, you know, you can work with the cap in, in the year if you're going to just push someone like Mahomes' contract into the future or someone who's going to be a core guy. You know, I, I wonder if they're a team that tries to get active around the trade deadline thinking, you know, we as a response to this game, we have to do something on defense because, Josh Allen's just going to carve us up. Absolutely. I've got that on my list of topics that I'm looking at. It's like, I think they're a team, you know, I think they're a team that has to, that's close, that has fallen off and has to supplement in some way. Um, And I think when, even though they're a confident team and all of that, I think when you take it on the chin like this, like it helps your organization in your locker room, if you um, don't accept it and kind of do something about it, you know what I mean? Right. And so, oh, hey, we're different now, right? I think they could use that because that defense is really – I think it's unrealistic to say, hey, Spags, just, just coach them up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that has been a team where for years, you know, really going back to the, the this, this run with Mahomes, they've been a stars and scrubs defense. They've been, hey, they've gone out, they've gotten, you know, uh, Tyron Matthew in free agency, they've gotten – uh, Anthony Hitchens for a big deal in free agency. They've traded for Frank Clark. They drafted Chris Jones, but really that has been a team where, you know, there have been guys kind of filling in. It's been signing Terrell Suggs off waivers. It's been getting Bashad Breland uh, when his contract with, I think the Panthers at the time fell through. It's been, you know, a defense where they've, they've gotten by with some guys filling in who were not expected to be impact players, but um, those moves right now are not working and they are marginal guys. They're, Mike uses their Daniel Sorensen's their uh the guys up front who are not Chris Jones not, are not playing well and 
I, you know, whether they want to cycle through some veterans, whether they want to bring in some guys, whether they want to trade for somebody like, uh, you know, th- like you said, this is not a one week pattern. They were a mess before the bills game. And then they played honestly worse than you would have expected heading into the game against the bills. And when you look at the other side of the coin, the bills, you know, they don't have Travis Kelsey. They have Dawson Knox did a pretty good Travis Kelsey impression in that game, but the bills are a very deep, very balanced football team. They're one of the few teams in the NFL could sit here right now and say, Hey, eh, we have too many pass rushers. You know, we might actually be able to trade uh, a Jerry Hughes or a Mario Addison because we just don't need him. We have so not many to Kansas to City, with. though. They won't be not, trading him to Kansas City. <laughs> not to Kansas City, to be fair. May you know what? If they get offered Addison for Kelsey, they might they, they'd have a conversation about it in the building, I think. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, that they're they are a team that is so deep and and has so much talent on both sides of the roster that they don't have to make a move. And you know, you never know what could happen. Josh Allen could get hurt. Um, Stefan Diggs could get hurt. You know, all, all these things could happen, but at the end of the day, they're not a player away from being in a bad situation for the Chiefs. They have all their stars right now outside of Chris Jones was a, a short-term injury, and they look broken. And, and I think that has to be really disconcerting if you're a Chiefs fan. Oh, yeah, I, I loved how the how, how the Bills looked and just operated in their abilities um, on both sides of the ball. And you mentioned Dawson Knox, but I, you know, I think this was a, the story of the Bills last year was Stephon Diggs. Mm-hmm. And now you see, ooh, Emmanuel Sanders, pretty nice addition, right? Yeah. Dawson Knox emerges. It's not just Stephon Diggs now. They have a nice kind of versatile – shoot, their starting running back isn't even their best running back. You know what I mean? Some guys have kind of come along and filled in here or been added, um, I think, to round out that offense. Um, now, if you get pressure on any quarterback, though, you're going to have some inconsistency, and I think that's just what they didn't have um, – you know, from Kansas City that made it be exaggerated. At one point, it was nine nine receptions or nine pass completions for 261 yards. That, that's just like AFL days stuff. <laughs> I will say, though, I was impressed by the Bill, Bills' defense because they had not exactly played murderer's row the first few games, and so yes, yes. they were number one in all the defensive categories. And you just knew, you know, history kind of tells us that it was going to even out some this sure. week against Kansas city and there statistically, they were going to take it, you know, they were going to take it on the chin in this game a little bit statistically. Well, guess what? I mean, I'm just looking at them defensive EPA. They were plus seven in the game. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what they were against Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's pretty darn good to do that to Kansas city. Usually when you beat Kansas city, it's Kansas city's defense is horrible, which we saw, but <laughs> Kansas City's offense usually makes it close anyway. Mm-hmm. Not this time. Not this time is right. And, you know, yes, the Bills are probably not going to get um, a pick six off of a tip pass if they play the Chiefs again. But if they play the Chiefs again right now, chances are pretty dang good. That game's going to be in Buffalo. And that is a very different place to play than Kansas City. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that the bills are the prohibitive favorites. Like I, I think I would still take the fields over the bills when it comes to the AFC, but I do think that they're, you know, in terms of how they've played comfortably yeah. the best team in the conference. I, I think you can make cases for the chargers who 
you know, are well ahead of the Chiefs now in the AFC West and a Chargers team that, of course, you know, won a, a classic, speaking of, of, of AFL games, um, an AFL style game against the Browns uh, in week five. I think you can make a case for maybe the Browns. I mean, I think the Browns are the best team in the AFC North right now. Um, the Ravens have flaws on defense. The Steelers have flaws on offense. The Dolphins are a mess without Tua Tango Valoa, who didn't look very good even before he got hurt. The Patriots are a work in progress. Um, the Broncos and Raiders are, you know, have their own issues. I mean, this is a this is a race now where the Bills can really put a lot of distance between themselves and the rest of the competition in the weeks to come. And of course, um, when they get they're at Tennessee this week, that can be a tough matchup. Um, but then after the bye, it's Dolphins, Jaguars, Jets. Colts, Saints, Patriots, like they could be in a position to be, you know, 10 and one uh, by the time they have to face the Bucks in, in week 14 and kind of already have, you know, uh, their foot in the door as the one seed in the AFC. It could be, a, it could be 11 and one, Bill, if you do it, because they got four right now. Tennessee be five. Yep. Dolphins, Jaguars, Jets, Colts, Saints. Now, obviously, and, and Patriots, it's easier said than done, but. Yeah, it'd be great shape. I would love to see Kansas City at Buffalo in a playoff game. And now that doesn't mean I don't want to see the Chargers or these other teams. I'm just saying if if, if those two teams were playing, mm-hmm. I'd love to see what Kansas City's made of in an underdog written off type of role. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's such a they've been such a given in the AFC. And I think we even felt that way coming into this year. That yeah, they'd be challenged by Buffalo, but kind of they were still the favorite. Um I I can't wait to see how they respond and what they do because they have to take advantage because remember in the, in the future years, um, Mahomes' contract kicks in, you know, and mm-hmm. is a little bit more of a factor and an impediment to do it to, to helping your roster. Right. I mean, this has been, you know, for the chiefs, they very clearly structured their deals to kind of create as much space over the next two years. Now they're going to be very good with Mahomes, but they're going to have to retool, you know, Travis Kelsey is going to be older. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they got rid of fine Clark after this year, Tyron Matthew, is a free agent after this season, there's going to be a retooling period. This is their, you know, they, their window's not going to be closed, but it's as open as it's going to be right now. And, you know, I think they can win in Buffalo if they have to, but the way they played last night, the way they played on last night, the way they played on Sunday night, they're going to get beat comfortably again. I mean, they're just, it, it was too easy for the Bills in that game. Isn't it, isn't the league amazing this way to where like, you know, after the, after the page or the Colts, Colts, the Chiefs won their first Super Bowl uh, with this group, you know, you, you sort of think, oh, God, I wonder how many they can win. I mean, let's <laughs> do a column saying, yeah, they're set up the next five years. They should be able to win multiple championships. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking the same thing, like when Seattle won their championship. Right. And they mm-hmm. got back the next year, but they didn't win it. And they and these opportunities are so precious. You think, hey, we've got Mahomes, Andy Reid. Uh, you know, Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, we got a nice window here, but I've seen this so many times happen where it's just not that easy. It's really hard to win it. And every opportunity you get, you have to do it. And now, because other teams are going to make a move on you, your team's going to slip in a certain area. And Mm -hmm. that's what makes it all so fun and fascinating and stressful. (laughs) Stressful is the right word to put out there. It is a, I mean, as soon as you feel like you have a handle on things, the league changes. And that is, that's the one thing that's going to change. To to tie this all together, Bill, a week ago, you 
or yeah, a week ago, you would say the last person to get fired from the Raiders would be John Gruden. Of, of all the people that work for the Raiders, mm-hmm. one week ago, you'd say he'd be the last guy to get fired. He's Reach the first guy to get fired. Yeah. I mean, everyone else is still there. It, it is crazy to think how quickly things can change. Well, Mike, I mean, we could talk about the Chiefs and the Bills for a long time, but wrapping up here. Um, but I know you will be covering this stuff in the weeks to come uh, on in written form and I believe in audio form. So please tell the people how they can hear more of you and read more of you. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, on The Athletic, you can find me there uh, in the app on the website. If people still go to websites, sometimes I do. <laughs> I hope so. And then, uh, uh, and then also, uh, I host every Saturday. You can find on on the Athletic Football Show feed. Uh, I've got a podcast. Me and Randy Mueller, former GM, talk about things around the league. And of course, I'm on Twitter at Sando NFL. Awesome. Well, Mike, you know it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, as always, to my friend and former colleague and my guest today, uh, Mike Sando of The Athletic. Mike's one of the smartest guys covering the NFL. Strongly recommend you read Mike every week. We'll be back next week. More audio on the way. We're about to hit the trade deadline in the NFL. And hey, like Mike just said, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the NFL from week to week. So much changes. So hope you guys are enjoying the audio content. Hope you guys are enjoying all the stuff we're putting out here at ESPN and more on the way next week.